Hello and welcome to the Achieve Results Nutritional Wellness Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have on with us a friend of mine and an incredible sleep coach, Mr. Nick Lamb. So Nick, thank you for being with us. I appreciate your time today. Absolutely, Adam. Always great uh, always great to chat and appreciate you having me on. Yeah, for sure. So Nick, tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself, your background, your education, and, and how you found sleep as a means of improving wellness. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the industry coming up on 12, 13 years now. Started off just traditional personal training, working in big box settings. And I've worked in a lot of different settings. I've actually spent a good majority of my career working in the rehabilitative setting. So working closely alongside physical therapists and and various other practitioners. And that was really where a lot of the affinity for sleep started to develop. We we were seeing in, in the rehabilitative setting, people who were doing similar things in terms of their treatment, They were doing seemingly all the right things, but we're getting markedly different outcomes. There's a lot of things that can come into play with that, but we were finding that sleep was one of those common themes. It was one of those linchpins for people who, again, were seemingly doing all the right things, but were getting different results on markedly different timelines. And we were finding time and time again that sleep was this kind of missing link and missing piece and something that just so many of our clients and patients were struggling with led me down an incredibly deep rabbit hole, as is the case with a, a lot of things in the in this industry. And there's so many things to unpack around sleep. And so I started to provide sleep coaching as a separate service and have done countless consultations and been providing a lot of sleep-related education. Uh, Saw a big void in the health and fitness industry in terms of how sleep was talked about and saw that really a good majority of coaches and practitioners didn't have necessarily the the tools and resources to be able to, to help sleep for those that they work with. And so a lot of my focus over the last few years has been educating other coaches and practitioners so that they can go with their clients and out into their communities and and provide more practical sleep related strategies. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's one of those things. It's funny because when you talk about seeing people in that rehabilitation setting, and I think up until the last, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Five years, maybe a little bit more. It was that whole like, sleep when you're dead attitude of just push it right do more like sleep less work harder push it harder and if you're not if you're not doing that you're doing it wrong so it's really taken a a 180 recently I, i don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit more but it's really obviously like where do you think sleep ranks in order of importance when it comes to exercise, nutrition, and all these other wellness practices that people are trying to improve on? Yeah, no, it's definitely been interesting to see things shift, like you said, over the last five to seven years. And then even since pan- the pandemic, when people's sleep started to get even worse than it was previously, we started to, starting to see pivots and shifts there. But I think there's still so many gaps and voids in the industry in the sense that It's one of those things that now has been talked about and it's been in more mainstream media and you're seeing a lot more coaches and practitioners talk about it and you're just seeing it a lot more forward facing, but you're not really seeing a dip in the number of people who are struggling. You're actually seeing it continue to increase and there's a variety of reasons why that's the case. And in large part, it's lack of sleep related education, like I talked about amongst practitioners, even amongst coaches. If you look at most medical schools, it's only about two hours worth of sleep education that makes up the entirety of their medical schooling, right? Despite the fact that the people who they work with spend a third of their life doing this activity and it impacts every single thing that they do, there's just not a lot of education. So you get a lot of uneducated medical providers in the space that just end up providing or prescribing a sleep medication. And we can certainly talk about some of the pitfalls that exist with with sleep medication. So that's this 
unfortunately, very common route that people end up taking. And then because of the prevalence of it being talked about, you see a lot of general sleep education. It's a, a lot of sleep hygiene lists and recommendations and tips the top 10 slip sleep tips to get a better night's sleep tonight or the your seven best sleep tips and tools. And there, there isn't necessarily anything wrong with any of those lists. And more often than not, all the things that are on those lists, I find are true and can be helpful for people who are struggling. The problem really comes down to context and individuality, right? It's one of the biggest things for me. And one of my biggest things I hope to change is that Sleep requires an individualized lens, and it requires a lot of the same types of coaching methodology that exercise and nutrition do, and it's just not getting that, right? If it's these lists don't have any context to you and what you're actually struggling with, what you actually need, how to implement those things. And then not surprisingly, we also have seen the supplement and sleep product industry boom tremendously, right? And there's a lot of products, supplements, services that unfortunately overpromise and underdeliver. And from a business and marketing perspective, I can't say I blame these companies and these brands because you have millions and millions of people who are struggling. And if you have a product that's within that space, you're going to really lean into and try and market that significantly, which like I said, I, I totally understand it and it makes a lot of sense, but none of those things are really making a dent in the people who are actually struggling. And when you talk in comparison to exercise and nutrition and where does it fit in terms of importance, obviously I'm maybe a bit biased. And I don't think it's more important. I would say it's equally important. But what I would say is that there's a lot more room for improvement in the sleep space than there are in those other areas. And just as one example of this, people search on Google. If you compare Google trends of what people are searching for, people exponentially up seven, eight times more search for sleep help than they do exercise and nutrition help. And that's not an indication that sleep is more important than exercise and nutrition. It just means that there are more people struggling and more people that don't have good, viable, sustainable options readily available to them. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. I don't know too many people that are completely happy with their sleep. What are some things that I guess you would recommend for people? I know we just talked about it being an individualized approach and sure. you don't want to throw these blanket things, but in general, what are some of the things? Like the, I guess the thing that pops into my mind is like, it's crazy because we all know, know we need to sleep more, but we all spend too much time on our phones at night, watching Netflix, whatever it might be. So if you had just some general recommendations for people to start considering in terms of improving their sleep, what would those be? Or where, where do you like to go? Yeah, I like to start on with a behavioral lens. And in part, because number one, I think this is where a good majority of people are actually struggling. Number two, I think these are the areas that don't get talked about as much. And if the behavioral side to sleep isn't addressed, any of the other recommendations that you see are going to be far less effective. So any, like those hygiene lists I mentioned, so any of the general recommendations and tips around technology and lifestyle and caffeine and all those things that are true, if you don't address the behavioral side to sleep, all those things are infinitely less effective, right? And so that's why I try to get people to really think in terms of their sleep behaviors. There's multiple things to unpack within that. The first really that I, I have people, I work with them in a coaching capacity is just to look at what your perception around your sleep and your sleep situation and your sleep ability really is. And especially if you're somebody who has struggled with sleep periodically and or, or even has been struggling with sleep for a long period of time, there 
inevitably is there's a lot of behavioral things that have become attached to that over time. A lot of these negative thoughts and perceptions and almost a loss in your confidence and your ability to sleep. And a lot of those things are actually what lead to some of those poor sleep behaviors. And sure, sometimes it is just people not prioritizing it and choosing to watch Netflix or late or choosing to to make any of these other decisions. But a lot of it comes from people who have been struggling in some capacity. And then again, it's over time, they've basically told themselves that they're a crappy sleeper and they've told themselves that's their situation. And it leads to this kind of self-fulfilled prophecy that, that people get stuck in. And so it's really taking a look at some of those thoughts and perceptions that you have. And really, I call them putting these thoughts on trial, right? Like really taking an honest assessment of these things. And are they actually the case? And then working to just reframe them in a positive light, as silly as that might even sound, but rewriting these thoughts out and these perceptions out, saying them in conversations with people in your life, saying them out loud. Like you want your, your perception is your reality, whether that's a, a false perception or not, that's your reality. So if you truly believe that you're not able to sleep or that you're destined to be a crappy sleeper, and that is what is going to be your situation. And so really working to change those thoughts and perceptions to become more of a new reality for you is the, is one of the starting points. It's really where I have most people start and start to unpack and, and peel back a little bit. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And just like anything else, like any of these wellness practices, like we got to start with those behaviors and start with the, our thought patterns and the way they're affecting us. So yeah, start putting those yeah. neg putting those negative thoughts to bed, if you will. Yeah, yeah you I mean, use that if you want to, if you want to use that line, put them to bed. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I'm gonna <laughs> it. Yeah, if you really look outside of medical conditions or diagnosed sleep disorders or medical conditions that affect sleep. And that is obviously those do exist. They're a much smaller percentage than they're conveyed to be. And I would say it's a much lower percentage than you would think mm -hmm. that it, that's made up of these medical based situations. Certainly they exist. And even in, when they do exist, there's a behavioral component attached to those as well. But Outside of those situations, you really have, we call them the, the three P's. And there's really three ways in which sleep issues develop. And I think it's important to understand that and how they do actually develop. So you have predisposing factors, right? And these are really anything that makes you more likely, more susceptible to deal with sleep issues versus someone else, right? Having a bit higher levels of anxiety, lower distress tolerance, right? your situation, where you are, where you live, all those, even age can fall under that category. All these things that just based on those circumstances, it can make you more susceptible to deal with a sleep disturbance, sleep issue versus someone else. And obviously, if you're someone who's in that category for some reason or another, by no means does it mean that your sleep situation is doomed. It's just giving the consideration to those things upfront, I think is important, right? So if it's the lower distress, really working to find things that you can do to mitigate stress, especially leading into sleep for yourself, right? Next, you have precipitating factors. These are the things that every single person listening deals with in some capacity at some point, right? These are the acute disturbances to, to sleep travel, being sick, a period of increased stress, right? Where sleep is going to suffer for maybe a day, maybe a few days, a week, even a few weeks. It's a transient situation, right? It's not 
going to always be the case, but it's, it is going to affect your sleep. And that's just the reality. And honestly, accepting that as a reality is really huge and important, right? Nobody sleeps 365 days out of the year. It just doesn't happen. We're human beings with too many moving parts in our life. And that's just not the way it works, right? But where a lot of people get stuck is when those predisposing factors or precipitating factors, when the acute variables become chronic is when they turn into what we call perpetuating factors, where now it was a period of time. And because of that period of time, your fundamental beliefs and expectations have changed. You've lost your confidence in your ability to sleep. And that is where people really tend to, to get stuck is in that, that negative feedback loop. And then there's a final component that develops for a lot of individuals. It's called conditioned arousal. So if you just think of the name, it's a conditioned response and it's a conditioned response to be awake, be aroused, the opposite of sleep when you're getting ready for bed, when you're going to bed, when you're physically in your bed and bedroom, right? And the analogy I always give for this, and it's silly because it's not exactly apples to apples, but I, I do think it helps paint the picture a little bit is think of this like food poisoning, right? If you were to go out with some friends to, to a restaurant and you got food poisoning. And for anybody that's gotten food poisoning, there's really not a whole lot much worse. It's a miserable experience <laughs> in every way, right? And let's say a little bit of time has passed and your stupid friends actually convince you to go back to that restaurant again, right? They tell you it was a one-off. It was a one-time thing. You go back to that restaurant and you get food poisoning again. At this point, hearing the name of the restaurant, driving past it, a certain smell, you might physically feel ill, even though you're not consuming the food from that restaurant, right? It's a conditioned response. So similarly, if you're spending a lot of time stressing about your sleep routine, lying in bed, not able to sleep or waking up and not able to fall back asleep, your brain is very associative and it becomes a conditioned response to be in bed and be awake. Some real telltale signs of this, if you fall asleep on the couch because you're so tired. And then the second you get into your bed, you're wide awake. And this is a very common one we see all the time, right? It's because even though you're incredibly sleepy, your bed and bedroom has been conditioned for you to be awake, right? You've spent too much time there awake. Or I sleep really well when I'm on vacation, but the second I come back home, my sleep issues come right back. When you're on vacation, in addition to the re probably reduced stress and anxiety, you're removed from your typical environment that you associate with being awake, right? And then the more obvious is if you just feel this sense of dread or panic or whatever it might be, as you're getting ready for sleep, as you see the clock start to dwindle down and getting closer to sleep, or as you lie there trying to sleep. So there's a few practical things to implement to combat, especially conditioned, that conditioned arousal. So the first, this can be a hard one to, to implement, but really prioritizing only doing things in your bed and bedroom that have to do with sleep, especially as your routine, as your evening winds down. We find that people do way too many things, especially in their physical bed that are not sleep. They're working in bed. They're watching TV in bed. They're eating in bed. I think that's gross, right? But to each their own, right? If that's no worries, by all means, maybe you just move it outside of the, the physical bed, right? But people do, they have deep conversations with all these things that they do and the, the brain keeps score on that. And it just, 
it furthers that association. And so the way I always say it is sleep and sex are the only things that should be done in the bed and bedroom, especially at time in those last couple hours leading into, and certainly when you're actually trying to, when you're actually trying to, to sleep. For sure. The one, the one that I'm a little more flexible on within that is reading in bed. I think that's something that a lot of people find relaxing, helps them wind down, helps them to fall asleep. Not very invasive. It can be low light. So reading in bed, I don't have a problem with. I think that can be valuable depending on what you're reading, of course, but that can be a viable strategy, but really everything else you're trying to, you're trying to limit. And as an example of this, I really have tried to create this association. And this was something that was hard for me. And it took me time to build and develop to where my wife, I love to death. Obviously my wife is a pillow talker. So she likes to <laughs> talk about the whole day, download the whole day, talk about our future plans, all these things when we're lying in bed and trying to really reduce that because I was really trying to create an association where when my head hits the pillow, that's it. Right. And I, as I was doing this, I'll, I'll admit there was multiple times I fell asleep on my wife mid-sentence, but that's the type of association that you want to, to create. Okay. So within that, an extension of that is really only going to bed and only physically placing yourself in bed when you are very sleepy. And I know that seems obvious, but what I find is a lot of people, because they think only in terms of sleep duration and they think seven, eight hours, seven, eight hours. Or if they're struggling, they feel like they need to get more sleep. They will very often force themselves to go to bed earlier, right? Which sounds good, right? Prioritize, go to sleep earlier. But if you're not physiologically ready for sleep, right? It's a mismatched circadian time. I know we'll talk about circadian rhythms a bit. If it's a mismatched time or you're just not physiologically ready, you're going to end up spending time lying there, not sleeping. So you're not going to get the duration you're targeting anyway. But again, now you're furthering these negative associations of you spending time there, not sleeping. Another food and nutrition analogy, you don't go and sit at the dining room table and wait to be hungry. Yep. You go and you sit and you eat when you're hungry. Similarly for sleep, you only go when you're actually sleepy and ready for sleep, even if it means getting lesser sleep duration for that given night. You're, the quality, if you really look at people who are struggling with sleep, and they've done studies of this, where you're looking at people who undergo, say, four to eight weeks of behavioral coaching, behavioral treatment, and they've previously had sleep issues. So they have sleepiness during the day, mood swings, low energy, inability to focus, right? They undergo this four to eight weeks, and they only see improvements in their sleep duration on average by about five to 15 minutes. Where they're making improvements is not in how much they're sleeping. It's in the quality of how they're sleeping and how they're building these more healthy relationships and associations long-term. Very cool. Yeah, and I then, love that. Sorry, the last, I'll just say the last, the last component of this combating to, to conditioned arousal. And it's the one that's the most, it sounds the most counterintuitive. It is if you are unable to sleep. So if you're unable to fall asleep, or if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're unable to get back asleep, if this happens on a consistent basis, physically getting out of bed and doing something low level and only coming back when you're very sleepy, I, we call it the 2020 rule. So if it's 20 minutes or more physically getting out of bed for 20, 25 minutes before you come back again, this is only if this is happening on a regular basis, but again, same thing. There's no benefit in you just continue to lie there not sleeping, ruminating about the fact that you can't sleep. 
right? No, 100%. Yeah. And that's cool because I use something similar with people around food too, right? It's just the, the whole idea of associations. So if you're like one of those people who likes to sit down in your chair at the end of the night and snack while you're watching TV, you got to disassociate because then every time you sit down in that chair, it's going to like the light bulb flicks on. Oh, it's snack time. Like whether you just ate dinner or whatever's going on, you're not even hungry, but all of a sudden it's you associate the chair with food and then things get out of control there. So yeah, totally. I, I, I try to do something very similar with uh, my coaching clients in terms of like the food. And like you mentioned, the dinner table, right? Use the dinner table for eating, not anything else so that you associate sitting, you know, down to eat with the dinner table. So that's very cool. So one of the questions and you touched on this, so I'll just segue in there is about sleep time. Obviously, everybody's getting told right now, you got to be getting seven to nine hours. If you're not asleep before midnight, 1am, you're giving up valuable REM sleep and sleep quality and all that. Obviously, just given what you said, I'd love to get your input on that and where the avenue that you're taking with people who are struggling with sleep a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I think with the, and that's definitely the most common thing I get asked from most people is how many hours of sleep do I actually need? Do I we need the seven, eight hours on a consistent basis. And the answer really, as anybody who's in the health and fitness industry knows that this is always the answer is it depends, right? <laughs> Be because it is true. And you really cannot generalize. I can't make a generalization for what anybody needs in terms of sleep duration. Anybody that says they can is, is full of it, right? Because there's a genetic component to how much individual sleep you need how efficient you are in this with the sleep that you get and how you work through your sleep cycles based on activity levels. There's a reason why the highest performing and highest level athletes will continually tout that they sleep 10, 11 hours. Does the average person need that? No, of course not. Right. But there's an increased recovery demand to meet that. And even though I think sleep duration is certainly important, and we do know that if you shortchange sleep duration over the long run, if you're only getting four or five hours on a consistent ongoing basis, you're going to, you're going to pay the piper for that, so to speak. And that's not an ideal scenario. I try to get people not to think too much in terms of sleep duration, especially at the beginning, because like we said earlier, that's not really where people are making the improvements and over-focusing on sleep duration actually has some problems built within it. The first of which is when you only look at sleep through the lens of sleep duration, and you base everything off of that, it alters the decisions that you make, where, like I said, you might be forcing yourself to go to sleep when you're not ready. And you're not thinking about the other pillars of healthy sleep. And so there are other pillars that make up healthy sleep. You alluded to, you know, quality and depth, right? How much time are you spending in the deeper stages of sleep? What's the quality of sleep that you're actually getting? And it can be vastly dif different a vast difference between seven hours of really good quality sleep and seven hours of fragmented, not good quality sleep. Regularity. So we haven't talked about circadian rhythms yet. I'm sure we will, but regularity and keeping your circadian rhythm health, going to bed and waking up at consistent times is incredibly important. That's a pillar of sleep. Continuity. So continuity is essentially going through all of your stages of sleep uninterrupted. Right. We know that, for example, alcohol can fragment your sleep. It causes fragmentations in your sleep cycles where you don't go through them in their entirety. So things that fragment your sleep. So when you're over focused and overthinking about sleep duration, you don't take into account those other pillars. And then maybe even more of a concern is that, and it goes with what I was in with what I was saying earlier, people tend to put a lot of stress on themselves and pressure on themselves to get eight hours in every situation, because that's the sole basis for how they view healthy sleep. 
right? To the point where it becomes this performance, right? Like they need to put the pressure on themselves. I got to get to sleep, got to get to sleep. It's eight hours. It's now it's seven hours. Now it's seven hours, right? And it becomes this feedback loop and cycle. And then they feel like if they didn't get, they have this all or nothing thinking where if they didn't get seven or eight hours, it was a complete fail. When I consistently can have people who slept six or six and a half that feel a whole lot better than people who think they slept seven and a half or eight. And so trying to diminish some of that stress and anxiety, really just a simple audit for this is just to not, you don't have to use sleep trackers. You don't have to do anything fancy. A simple audit for this is just to really look at a handful of things. How sleepy do you feel during the day? What's your energy levels typically like? What's your ability to focus and what's your general mood throughout the day? And there's some other things, your ability to your productivity and things that we know are impacted by sleep and sleep quality on a day in and day out basis, right? And use that as your starting point of how you're gauging your sleep health and your sleep success. And then really your focus to make improvements is not at the onset is not thinking about trying to get more sleep necessarily. It's like we said, starting to work through some of those thoughts and perceptions and really just starting to build a healthy pre-sleep routine, something that gets you into the right state of mind to sleep, even if it means, like I said, at this point, you're only getting six and a half hours of sleep. It's going to be of better quality. You're going to be establishing much better routines and habits long-term. So really that's where more most people should be thinking about and focusing, not so much in, hey, I've been sleeping crappy for a while. Let me go to bed earlier and try to get more sleep. Perfect. Yeah. And I, I definitely want to get into circadian rhythms. I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I did want to actually touch on this and which you segued me again into here, which is perfect. But what do you think of the tech and the impact that has on people and I guess like their mindset around their sleep? I'd just be curious to know your thoughts on like the quality of the tech. And then the thing that always scares me about this stuff is you put a bunch of high level information into the hands of people who don't know a lot about it, right? Like even for me, like an HRV or a sleep score or whatever, it's to be totally honest, I'm not a professional in HRV or sleep scores, right? I sure. don't know that I can use that information to the 100% best of my ability or like to the most, like most positive impact on myself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, this usually surprises a lot of people because I'm, I've been in the sleep space and I've had so many products and companies and trackers reach out to partner and to push the product and, and all of those things. But for the vast majority of people I work with, and I recommend the same on a general sense, and I recommend the same to coaches when they work with their clients, I tend to not use sleep trackers and a whole lot of tech in what I, and the biggest reason for that really is we've alluded to already the stress and anxiety that people have placed on their sleep situation, their potential inability to sleep is it's already enough. And I find that adding a sleep tracker into the mix is just one more piece of stress and anxiety. People tend to get over fixated on the number or numbers that, and we can certainly talk about the accuracy, but that may not even be that accurate to begin with. And now they're basing how they feel about their sleep on those numbers, right? And I mentioned one of the biggest and most powerful things to do is to restructure some of the negative perceptions that you have around sleep. And people are actually pretty poor at self-estimating their sleep and how much they actually got and the quality. But And so you can work on changing those things. 
I can't restructure a number that you get a sleep score that you get or a sleep quality number, right? I, that's the number, right? That's the number that it gives you, even if it's not accurate, that's the number it gives you. And that's the number you're going to fixate on, right? In terms of the accuracy, they certainly have gotten a lot better, right? I'm not going to say that they haven't, they certainly have, but they're not there in the sense of being to the point where we can say, yes, this is gold standard. This is clinical standard. This is certainly accurate, especially when you get into really distinguishing between how much time you spend in deeper stages of sleep. For example, hey, you spent 20% in non-REM stage two, 20% in non-REM stage three. It's just, they're just not there. And part of the reason they're not there is one of the biggest things we look at to classify sleep stages, sleep quality is brainwave activity. And these are not looking at, they're looking at a host of physiological variables, but they're not looking at brainwave activity, right? And so they can be pretty good at estimating if you're actually asleep or if you're awake, they can, most of them can be fairly good at, at estimating, are you in rapid eye movement sleep or in, are you in non-rapid eye movement sleep? And a, a big reason why they're, it's easier for them to do this is during rapid eye movement sleep, for example, we see a lot more heart rate variability through dreams and through different processing. We see a lot more fluctuations in heart rate. So it's a bit easier for them to pick that up and know that somebody's in rapid eye movement sleep. Whereas the cardiovascular system tends to kind of calibrate during non-rapid eye movement sleep. So in those areas, they can be pretty good. But the biggest thing is, like I said, not adding more stress and anxiety to, to your plate where the use case where they can be beneficial for the right person. And I emphasize for the right person. If you're somebody who does do good with data and does do good with information and it tends to motivate you, that can be beneficial in the sense that even though they're inaccurate, they're consistently inaccurate, right? So what I mean by that is you can still establish a baseline and then you can still see how certain variables impact that baseline. Yep. So you establish a baseline and then you have a few drinks or you make a change in your nutrition plan or you make a change in your sleep schedule. You can see how those things impact your overall sleep. But again, for the vast majority and those who especially who are struggling, I tend to discourage them from using sleep trackers. And I alluded to it a bit earlier, but subjective values that you can just track on a one to 10 basis ongoing can be a good substitute for that and give you good information. There's some pretty simple, easy sleep diaries and sleep logs that are out there that you can utilize to track some information, but that's not going to be as stress provoking as say a sleep tracker. For sure. Good. Yeah. I love that. I guess the only place that I love to see when people use the sleep tracker is when they have some drinks and their recovery hits the shitter and they're like at a 3% recovery. And then they're like, Oh no, I better stop. Yeah. Like, provides, right, good. That's provides a good them way. The awareness and they can actually see it objectively. Yeah. Hey, yeah, exactly. I'm like, perfect. Now you've got a reason to maybe lay off the booze a little bit. Then that helps our fat loss and our body comp efforts as well. But yeah, man, no. So I, I like that. That's a, a really cool explanation. And I appreciate you taking us through that. And so with, yeah, with the time we do have remaining, can you just get into what exactly are you talking about when you're talking circadian rhythm? Yeah. Okay. So broadly speaking, circadian rhythms, circadian rhythms are one of your body's ways to actually regulate and maintain homeostasis. So you think at any given time, the multitude of things that are going on in your body, how many different physiological systems are operating and each of those systems doing so many things when certain hormones rise and fall, when your cardiovascular system peaks and 
all these things that operate. Circadian rhythms are one of the ways that internally your body has a regular, consistent way to maintain balance and homeostasis, right? So you have, they're not physical clocks, obviously, but you have these clocks, these timing clocks within really every single cell in your body, every single organ system. And they are influenced, number one, in part by genetics. So these circadian rhythms do have a genetic predisposition or component, if you want to call it that, right? We've all heard of things like morning larks or night owls, right? People who tend to want to be up later, right? And they are influenced by lifestyle and environment, right? So there are certain aspects of lifestyle and environment that have a direct influence on these clocks, on these internal clocks. And in the context of sleep, as that's a lot of what we're talking about, one of the mechanisms that falls on these circadian rhythms is your sleep-wake cycle, right? when you are, when you'd prefer to be asleep and when you'd prefer to be awake, right? And there are hormones that can coincide and rise and fall with that. Most notably, people talk about melatonin and cortisol, right? In an ideal scenario, melatonin levels peak when it's time for you to sleep and cortisol levels dip. And then as you're waking up, you see those taken opposite kind of flip-flop. Because so much of lifestyle and environment influences these circadian rhythms, we see a lot of disturbances in not only sleep-wake cycle, but in a lot of other physiological variables as well, right? So these lifestyle and environmental factors, the big ones are light and absence of light, right? Natural light specifically. Temperature, food timing, exercise timing, right? All of these things have a direct influence on these internal clocks and how they operate. Specifically, the reason why light gets so much attention is because there, when we look at all of these clocks, all of these timing rhythms throughout your physiology, there is a master clock. There is one set or cluster of cells within your brain, within the hypothalamus of the brain called the SCN, that actually communicates to the rest of the clocks throughout your physiology. So it's the one that provides the initial signaling basically to speak to all these other clocks and say, okay, here's what's happening. Here's what's not happening. Let's speed things up. Let's slow things down, right? These, that cluster of cells, that SCN in the brain is directly influenced by light, right? So you have these cells in your eye, they're called melanopsin cells that take in light or the absence of light. And then these cells have a direct line to that master clock, right? So basically when you are taking in natural light or when you are not getting enough natural light, that is speaking directly to this master clock that is then communicating to all these other aspects of your physiology. So it can have a detriment on metabolism can have a detriment on your sleep-wake cycle and so many other variables. And as is not surprising at all, because of modern society, we're not getting nearly enough sunlight, not enough, near, nearly enough natural daylight throughout the day, right? We're spending a lot of time in artificial lighting that do not provide that same signaling, right? So that's a an overview of circadian rhythms and circadian biology. And it's honestly something that's incredibly fascinating because of how much impact it actually has. And 
really, if you look at circadian biology as a field of study, as a field of research, in comparison to just about anything else, it's a really new and evolving field. But even in that shorter amount of time, we know so much and we know how many things it actually ultimately governs and impacts. Yeah, amazing. So just in terms of regulating that, obviously you're talking about daylight being super important and all the things that you mentioned there. But so essentially, what would you recommend as the best way to just make sure this thing stays on track? Just stay as regimented to a schedule as possible with all of the above, food, training, sleep, obviously, your daylight hours, things like that. Yeah. So that's one of those where, of course, in an ideal perfect scenario, that would be the case where you're getting consistent sunlight, you're prioritizing less light and darkness in the evenings, you are going to bed and waking up at the same time and you're keeping your food windows consistent day to day, you're even consistent movement, you're keeping consistency and temperature, that would be in an ideal scenario. But firstly, nobody likes to live their life that regimented, and that's just not realistic. So I would say really the big rocks are number one is sleep and wake time. Because if you really take a look at your schedule, your life commitments, you can pick a consistent time to wake up and go to bed and keep that relatively consistent as much as you can. And just what that provides from a circadian cue is incredibly powerful. It'll also benefit your overall sleep quality, right? So that's a big rock. And that's an I'm not saying it's an easy one to do because to actually do that in your lifestyle is challenging, but it's a lower hanging fruit, right? Totally. And then I would say because of the reasons we talked about of how much influence it actually has, I would make light a priority, right? And so there's a lot of variables within this, right? So if we look at the first cue is getting, ideally being woken up by sunlight or by daylight. I certainly know A lot of people get up super early. Certainly people in our industry get up very early, right? Usually it's still dark out. So I totally understand that. There are things to offset that. There are daylight alarm clocks. There are daylight lamps that come close to the lux or measurement of light capacity to that of being outside in the sunlight. It's not the same, but it's certainly a hell of a lot better than artificial lighting and being woken up by, by artificial lighting right? It's also a much more pleasant way to wake up. If you have these daylight alarm clocks, it gradually introduces the light to to wake you up. It's just a much more natural, pleasant way to wake up. The next pocket is trying to get anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes of sunlight in the earlier part of your morning. So after you started to wake up, again, I know this can be challenging based on time, environment, some considerations with this, again, daylight lamps. So even a lamp that you can have in your living room or somewhere in your, your house that, again, has that similar lux that you can utilize. Also, things that you're doing in your morning routine, even being next to the window is powerful. It's still better than being in primarily artificial light, right? And I always get asked to get people from all over the place and different weather environments and all that. Northern hemisphere, yeah. Sure. Cloudy day, rainy day, still beneficial, still matters, right? And then on the opposite side of that, really trying to prioritize the absence of light when you're sleeping. So in your physical bedroom, even the little lights on cable boxes and things like that, believe me, they make a difference. Even if you don't think they do, when your eyes are closed, it can still and is very susceptible to taking in light and that can provide 
an opposite signal of what we want. So really prioritizing darkness. If you're not able to do it in your environment, right? There's blackout shades, night masks, like an eye masks. Yeah. All those things can help. And then an underestimated piece is in the evening. So as you wind down, gradually reducing the amount of light makes a big difference as well. It, it doesn't need to be every light in your house is on. And then two minutes before you go to bed, you just turn everything off, right? I always say start couple hours before, turn off 50% of the lights in your house, lights that you're not using. If you have one room in your house where you can have one or two bulbs that are actually red or orange and ambient lighting, it actually makes a big difference. It's a more, it's more on the spectrum of light that signals it's starting to, to wind down. Think about as the sun is setting, right? Similar type of effect for the brain. So just some general thoughts and things to think about with, with light. Amazing. Awesome, Nick. I appreciate your time, buddy. Yeah, no, that's all super useful information. I think that's a great place for people to start, right? Sleep can definitely be complicated, but I think those are a couple of things that everybody can put to use immediately. Like I said, man, I appreciate your time. You're a busy man. You got a thousand things going on. So where can people learn more about you, work with you, attend a conference, all of the above? How how, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah. So probably easiest is either email or Instagram. So on Instagram, I'm at the online sleep coach. So T-H-E online sleep coach. And then email is just online sleep coach at gmail.com. Either way, where you shoot, send a DM or an email, I'm usually pretty responsive. Feel free to reach out with questions or thoughts, but yeah, man, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for your time.